So I'm going to now uh, chant the sermon. We have. Um, hope you have a long time. No, I'm not really. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, my brothers and sisters. Amen. So the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote this, and I love it. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Once every two years, my family and I pack up for England and head over the pond to see my family. This is one of those years. In three weeks, I jet the unusual route from Denver to Reykjavik, Iceland, and then on to London. Before that, I have to buy presents for my parents, brothers, and their kids, as well as my English godchildren. None like the, the idea of the Advent conspiracy, including my Episcopal priest father, who continues to call me idealistic. <laughs> the cost to me for this little jaunt across the Atlantic is, quite frankly, outrageous. Finals are coming up for my two high schoolers, and I leave for about a week-long silent meditation retreat in Houston on the 9th. My wife is freaking out about said trip to England, as well as said silent retreat. At the office, I have payroll and loan payments to make, one very large client wanting to go on hold for the holidays, five or six proposals out for 2014, and existing clients to keep happy and paying their invoices on time. The mortgage and car payments have to be paid. In addition, I have to prepare this sermon, or I had to. I could go on, and I'm sure there are at least 10 or 20 people in this room with Decembers busier than mine. So as I sat down to write this sermon, I was feeling rather sorry for myself, but then I read about Zachariah, the poor old chap. <laughs> He's just been into the inner chambers of the Jew Jewish temple, a place so holy that one more door in, and there's only one person on the planet allowed in there, and then only once per year on the Day of Atonement. So surrounded by the fragrance of fresh incense, amid the pungent smoke of burning ox, goat, and sheep flesh on the 24-hour burning sacrificial fires, Zechariah chants the ancient prayers of the Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall speak of them. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll, they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. But through the holy chanting comes a voice. Zechariah, don't be scared. Angels always say that. I don't know what it is. As Zechariah opens his eyes and looks up, there in front of him is a vision of the angel. A brief aside here. This passage always reminds me of a translation of the angel's words by an old chaplain at my very traditional English boys' prep school. It went something like this. This is the angel speaking. 
Look here, old chap. I know you and the better half are getting on a bit, but God has listened to your prayers for a nipper, and he's decided that your wife will indeed be able to produce one. Now, there's one thing that's quite important. You must call him John. You and the better half will be so happy after the Sprog's arrival, and all your neighbors will have a jolly good knees up to celebrate. And John, John will be quite the chap in God's eyes, and he will be full of the Holy Ghost. In fact, he'll bring quite a few other blokes over to God. Notice the lack of women. And you'll never see him down at the local with a pint of the strong stuff in his hands. Oh no, John will lead the way all right, preparing everyone for God's imminent arrival. Somehow sticks in the mind, that little. But of course, John didn't quite trust this intruder on his once-per-year visit to the inner sanctum of the temple. And he doubted. He doubted. And so his punishment. An inability to talk until the birth of his son. Nine months of scratching on a chalkboard to communicate. As his wife moaned and whined her way through pregnancy, he couldn't say a thing. Now, of course, when I was thinking about this sermon, I was trying to think of the message that God may have been importing in this piece of scripture. What is the message? Well, quite frankly, I don't think there is a clear message here. My guess is that the majority of unchallenging sermons talk about how God keeps his promises or that God delivers miracles or some other similar platitudes. And then the words of St. John of the Cross came to me. God's first language is silence, and everything else is a poor translation. Or the words of Mother Teresa. We need to find God, and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass, they all grow in silence. See the stars, the moon, and the sun how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch souls. So if anything, God was doing Zechariah a favor by taking away his ability to talk. God was reminding him that in the words of a Zen master, I know well, and he shouted this at me once, he needs to sit down, sit still, and shut up. So back to our hectic activity of this time of Advent. I'm lucky, very lucky, that I'll be taking a week in which I will take a vow of silence for an entire week in a convent in Houston. I will be reminded that the frantic activity surrounding it is of little consequence. It's of such little consequence that I hope to be able to chuckle as I pack my bag for England and watch myself and the rest of my family get increasingly anxious as the flight time approaches. And being deliberately silent in, in what in churchy language is called praxis, a spiritual practice designed to move us closer to God, and therefore more whole, more happy, and more fulfilled in life. It is, of course, not the only praxis, but in today's ridiculously noisy, busy world, it may well be the best. So throughout Advent, I invite you to emulate Zechariah 
and shut the hell up. (laughs) Those of you who are skeptical should not underestimate the importance of the practice of silence in daily lives. Silence can have a very profound impact in the way we think, our daily actions, and our relationships. Very often we are surrounded with noise all day long. And to keep moving from one task to the other without taking a break to think, to reflect, to introspect. But for all these things, you require silence. Here are what I term the five pillars of science. Silence. Five profound reasons why we should practice some sort of silence in our daily lives. One, silence gives your mind room for introspection. Sit still and observe for five minutes, ten minutes or more. It doesn't matter. Take a while to observe what your mind is doing. Silence helps you build awareness about your innermost thoughts. After a while of observing, you can get to that core of your being. The Trappist monk Thomas Merton used to say that your very core is an area untouched by the world or sin. It is the divine essence. Silence brings clarity to thought. Imagine a crystal clear pond on a frosty morning or the perfection of a high-grade diamond. Then imagine a thought as clear as that. The clarity of silence gives you the pristine gift of wise choice. So often we are not the master of our own actions. We're the products of choices poorly made. Silence allows God more space to work in our lives in order that our choices are judicious and wise. And wise choices will ultimately lead to a beautiful life. But there's a fear of silence in our society that I find troubling and odd. Some people, and some of you, maybe among them, have a profound fear of not having any kind of noise surrounding them. It's as though silence reminds them of nothingness, perhaps even of death itself. Ever since the Sony Walkman was created when I was about, oh, I don't know, 10 years old, Ever since that moment, and now through to the iPod generation, music pervades as a perpetual background. Silence is like a vacuum that is immediately filled by something, well, vacuous. So some in this congregation may need to try silence very slowly, like dipping your toe into a river before moving on to longer periods. I've heard that turning off a radio in the car is a great way to start. My 14-year-old son likes to go outside and stare at the night sky, even now in winter, in complete silence. I encourage you to try to find that toe dip for yourself, whatever works. Only then will you be able to see, take off your shoes, and realize that the earth's crammed with heaven while everyone else is on their iPod plucking blackberries. Amen.